Today, I am announcing that the Treasury will purchase equity stakes in a wide variety of banks and thrifts. Government owning a stake in any private U.S. company is objectionable to most Americans, me included. Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. Today is Tuesday, October 14th. It's about 4.32 p.m. Adam, what's going on out there? Well, we just heard Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson make today's major announcement. As we have reported here many times, American taxpayers are now going to be buying into banks. They're going to be buying shares whether we want to or not. And does the market like it? Well, the the Dow seemed to like it. The stock market seemed to like it, and then they seemed to not like it quite as much. It, uh, it, the, the Dow went way up, and then it fell down. The and Dow it, doesn't and know. The Dow doesn't know. The credit markets are not impressed as of yet. Uh, as you know, we here at Planet Money, I guess today we are officially instituting dun, 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 the Planet Money Indicators. These are things we've talked about before, but we're calling them the Planet Money Indicators. Uh the TED spread, which we've talked about a lot, it is still above four, huge number. It's at 436 basis points. That means 4.36. That is down a little. It went down about 4.5% from yesterday, but it's still way, way, way in the stratosphere compared to historic norms. So the TED spread is not doing terribly well. LIBOR also remains high, and the uh, three-month Treasury bond. I actually just had that up and I've lost it, but it was very um, low, which is bad. Remember, if Treasury bonds are low, three months are yielding 0.12. Yesterday, they were 0.11. But even last week when things were crazy bad, they were 0.67. So it's fallen. With Treasury bonds, the lower it is, the worse things are. With TED spread, the higher it is, the worse things are. And both of them are in the worse things are area. But another way to find out what's going on is to call the front lines of the credit crisis. And we called up, I I think we can say our favorite money trader. He could be our pet money trader. Here's our pet money trader, Will Aston Reese with the flowing blonde locks. Uh, That's actually true. He really does have flowing blonde locks. Of Tradition Asian Securities in New York. He says that he wouldn't read too much into the bad news today because people are trying to figure out what this plan is. There's a lot of noise that has to be sorted through, um, and until people can get some definitive answers, there's really not going to be a lot of movement. Uh, One of the phrases that you've used in asking me is, have we seen any cracks in the ice yet? No, we haven't. There were no cracks in the ice here either. No trades? No. Nothing? And you're just, there's just not any money moving through your desk? No, none at all. And... Another thing that you got to keep in mind, Adam and Laura, is that it's one thing for the government to say these measures have freed up lending. In other words, lending should be able to begin unabated. It's another thing to actually have cash on hand to lend. This is a credit crisis. It's also a liquidity crisis. So, again, it's one thing to say, okay, feel free to invest in banks or to lend to banks. It's another thing for that money to actually be there to be invested into the banks. Got you. And uh, 
so so I'm picturing you've got clients. There's all sorts of money market funds and banks who have teams of lawyers and accountants just drilling through all these plans, trying to figure out what's going on. Risk managers, yeah. Risk managers. Before they actually... But the hope is it's possible that tomorrow or the next day the conclusion will be, hey, it is okay. We're going to start lending again. I think you're going to see a trickle before you see any kind of sustained stream. I don't think it's just. I don't think it's going to be like throwing a light switch where all of a sudden the light's on. I think it's going to be more like slowly opening the spigot if and when it occurs. And I'm not saying I, I'm remaining very agnostic about this plan. Um, that's assuming that the, these people their 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 plan achieves its best case scenario. That's assuming that it achieves its best case scenario. Even if it achieves its best case scenario, it's still just a trickle. It's going to start as a trickle before it becomes a steady stream. So it sounds like no daylight yet for trader Will Aston Reese. Not yet for him. We wanted to figure out for ourselves what is in this big plan. We wanted to do what he's doing. We wanted to figure out what's going on in this plan. Um, the the There's this big idea of making a capital injection, this stock injection, where it's a fancy way of saying the government gives money to banks and in return they get shares in those banks. And it's very different from how the bailout was originally sold, that original Paulson plan and even the the modified plan that the Senate and the House finally passed. The original idea was to use that $700 billion to buy up all those bad mortgages and other toxic assets. Now at least a chunk of this money is going directly to sort of semi-nationalize the banks. This guy, Christopher Carroll, is a professor of economics at Johns Hopkins. He says that he thinks that the stock injection is a good idea, and he says we've turned a corner. Christopher, if if I understand right, I mean, you're saying today, uh, Tuesday, October 14th, we finally figured it out. We've solved the problem. I think we've the fever is broken, and uh, we are uh, on a path that's going to end up being okay. And what broke the fever? It's this announcement this morning that the government is going to buy shares in banks? That's right. I think that uh, the coming up with a credible plan that will actually address the key problem, which was the banks uh, were short on money, short on capital, instead of addressing the the, the sort of uh, what looked like a problem but wasn't really at the root of everything, which was this uh, toxic assets problem. You, you were one of, I, I would think, a majority of economists who wanted this to happen even before uh, even before it was part of the plan. C- can you explain why you wanted this to happen and why you were disappointed that it wasn't? And then let's get to what did happen. Um. Well, it it was never clear to me or I think anybody else how um, purchases of the sort of what we call the toxic assets would really do anything to fix the problems that we were in. Uh, and it looked like it might be a terrible deal for the taxpayer. Um, so if it doesn't fix the problem and is a ripoff, um, that's not really a, a plan that one can be enthusiastic about. Uh, the real problem was that the um, banks were short on um, money, short on ca- uh, capital to lend to, be to people and firms. And uh, so you needed to get uh, capital directly into the banks and not uh, use it to buy these toxic assets. 
So you wanted this stock injection plan from the beginning. So did, like I keep saying, a majority, not every economist, but a majority of the economists I've, I've spoken to and read, I would say, supported the stock injection plan. Um, which is, and just quickly lay that out in, in the abstract. What, what is a stock injection plan? Um, well, it's a plan basically where the government comes to uh, a, a bank that's in trouble and says, uh, here's the deal. Uh, you need money. We have money. Uh, we're going to get something in exchange for it. We're going to get an ownership stake in in you bank, and um, we're going to sort of sit on your uh, back until you pay us off, uh, and that gives you the incentive to uh, to do a good job and uh, sort of make some money so you can pay us off and get back to uh, your your normal business. Uh, and that's a lot better than just going to the bank and saying, you have some, some nasty stuff that you would like us to overpay you for, uh, then just dump it on us, which was the original plan. And then go about your business. <laughs> when the plan first came forward and the idea was to buy up the toxic waste off the bank's balance sheets, the number $700 billion was attached to it. And they said, well, this is, this is what we think will do it. We're now down to Treasury having easy access to $350 billion. Do you think that's enough money to do this, to make it work? Um, it's a good question. It may not be. Um, they are trying to structure the plan uh, in a way that will encourage uh, private investors to uh, get in on the game, uh, like Warren Buffett did uh, in, when he got, took a stake in uh, Goldman Sachs. In fact, what the government is doing with respect to the financial sector as a whole is actually quite similar to what Warren Buffett did with his investment in Goldman. And that's a reassuring thing, ought to be a reassuring thing to all the taxpayers out there, because uh, Warren Buffett was uh, looking to make some money from his investment in Goldman. And uh, so I think we can hope that the taxpayer might ultimately end up doing okay. So what you're saying is, ignore what the president says, ignore what the Treasury Secretary and the Fed chairman say. If Warren Buffett is for it, then that shows it's probably a good idea. <laughs> yes. Well, the president, <laughs> frankly, doesn't have much credibility, and neither does the Treasury Secretary anymore. But Warren Buffett, uh, we know he's a smart guy and out to make a buck. So um, if we're doing the same thing he was doing, then probably we're on the right track. And that's the basic idea here is, is we – what we own – I mean, it looks like we'll also buy toxic waste. But right now what we own is shares in banks. If those banks do better, our shares do better – we as taxpayers get more money back. With the toxic assets, we own the thing that nobody on earth wants right now. Mm -hmm. There are a variety of ways where you could conceive of it increasing in value and us getting money back. But it seems to me that most people who look at it think there's a pretty safe bet we're going to lose money on that. Right. And Whereas with the banks, at least we have a shot. Or do you think we'll definitely make money? I think there's a very good chance we will make money, um, partly uh, because this plan is uh, structured around the idea of making uh, the the banks sufficiently attractive um, to try to lure in private investors as well. Uh, and it, the private investors, like Warren Buffett, um, are only going to be lured in if they think they're going to make money. And so uh, if uh, the private investors do uh, pile in, um, at least uh, that's a, a vote of confidence that uh, they think uh, they're going to make money. Thank you to Christopher Carroll of Johns Hopkins. Uh, we put a link to his blog on our site, npr.org slash money. 
Can I just say, Adam, that every time I hear stock injection or capital injection, I think of the needle scene in Pulp Fiction? Wow. That's kind of what it is. Actually, that's a really good point because like Uma Thurman, the banking system was dead and the government came along with a massive hypodermic needle, shoved it in the chest and pumped it. We're still in that moment in the movie where we don't quite know if it worked yet. She, the banking system has not jumped up and gasped itself back to life. Yeah. Pr- Professor Carroll, he seems kind of optimistic about it. But then we talked to this other guy, Anil Kashyap, of the University of Chicago Graduate School of Business. And he found, well, he found the devil hanging out in the details. Well, it's a good start. And I certainly would be in the list that have been saying they need to recapitalize the banks. But the key thing is whether or not this plan as it's set up is definitely going to do that. And that's where, unfortunately, the details matter a lot. So two of the provisions that I I believe are correct uh, about this plan are, first of all, there's no restrictions on the ability of these uh, banks that have received the support from paying dividends, provided they've made the dividend payments that they promised the government. Wait, so what you're saying is if if there's no limit on how much they can give a dividend and, you know, here at Planet Money, we we try and deal with the deep issues, but we also try and cut through the jargon for people who aren't as familiar. A dividend basically means you own a stock and once a quarter or twice a year or whatever, you get some money as a payment. The company is sharing their profits with the people who own the company. Yes, and dividends can only be paid after you've paid all the bank loans and other debt that you've you've borrowed. And so you would you would like to see a limit on what because basically what if I am I right here that by having an uncapped dividend a bank could take say 10 billion dollars from the US government from us from the taxpayer and after getting a little bit healthier basically give that 10 billion dollars to the owners of the bank. Yeah, there's there's some restrictions. I mean, they have to at least pay back the dividend that they promised the government uh, on, you know, the condition of the 10 million or billion going in is that they have to pay certain uh interest on that back to the government. But after that, there's no prohibition on paying out additional monies to the current uh, shareholders. So that undermines my principle of maximizing the capital that remains in the banks, because if they don't hang on to the money, their ability to resume lending and and get the economy going again is going to be is going to be limited. The the existing shareholders may have different interests than the the government, you and I, in seeing these these banks revived. So why why would I mean a, a bank wants to be recapitalized? Why would they? A bank wants to maximize the return for the existing shareholders, and so if they've just been handed a big pile of money and they can essentially divert it to the existing owners, then that that may be tempting. So I, I'm feeling my blood boiling here a yeah, little. Yeah, I'm wondering I'm... why they why they would do it this way. Why would the government set this up like this? Um, well. I mean, you'll have to ask the government why there weren't restrictions on dividends. Most of us that were pushing for recapitalization just presumed that there were going to be really sharp restrictions on the ability to pay out any money to to the existing owners. I'm not saying that this should be indefinite or anything like that, but there should definitely be 
some sort of mandate that they have to get back to where they're very, very well capitalized. Maybe, you know, um, paying back the money that they've they've uh, borrowed from the government or starting on a path to doing that before they start returning money to the existing existing equity holders. Wow. All right. So that that does we're going to pay a lot of attention. And Anil, when you get back from your trip to Europe, I'd love to check in with you on that because I'm going to make that a planet money priority is really monitoring that. Well, uh, you should you should check too about exactly what the rules on repurchasing shares because that's that's another way that you can return money to the existing and, and, and that is that you said there were two things you didn't like is that the second yeah, thing that's you don't the second the re, the repurchase the repurchase restrictions if i understand correctly are, are a little bit more onerous they can only do it in keeping with the patterns that they'd already established. Anil, I'm going to cut you off there. I just want to explain. Repurchasing means, so let's say I have a car company and I have a 1,000 shares in my company out there, and each one is worth $100. So I have $100,000 in capital. What I could do if I make a lot of money and I have cash in the bank is I could buy 500 shares from the public and basically repatriate it back to my company. And that effectively raises the – that's a benefit to the existing shareholders who keep their stock, right? Their yeah. stock value goes up because um, it diminishes the number of outstanding shares. And, and, and so each share is worth more. Yeah, the number of ways that the pie has to be split falls – so the people that sell either get the money then or you get a claim from uh, that's shared with with fewer people. So one way or the other, you're better off. And so that's another thing they could do. So one thing they could do is take the billions of dollars the U.S. taxpayer gives them and give it – just directly give it to, to, the pub, to their shareholders. The other way is they could take that money, use it to buy stock – and then the shareholders who didn't sell their stock are, have basically received a free gift from the taxpayer by, by having their what they own increase in value. Right. So these are basically ways that the government money, instead of going in to kind of build up the risk-bearing capacity of the bank, could di- get diverted towards just re- rewarding the current owners. And, and that's not the point of what the equity injection was supposed to be about. Now, I'm reasonably confident that the vast majority of people who are going to hear this conversation are going to say, this is outrageous. This makes me wish they hadn't done this. Are you there? Do you wish they had just not done this deal, at this plan at all? Or do you feel like with its flaws, it's still better than not having this? Um, there, there are other details that, that we still don't know about. But look, I think the, the banking crisis, the, the banking crisis had reached a new stage and they had to try to recapitalize the banks. But if you've got a bank that ends up having got this money and it's going to turn out to be inadequate and then they're on the road to, to failing, there may be this temptation to you know pay the money out. So, One last thing. We did talk to one economist today who said, all right, he thinks this is – we're turning the corner. Things are going to start improving. Uh, what do you think? I think – I think the alternative of not doing anything would have been completely disastrous. So we're certainly going to have stabilized things for a bit. Now we're going to have to see. I, I hate to be a one-note Johnny, but if they don't actually recapitalize the banks, then there's this isn't going to 
turn the corner. You know, if it turns out that you need more than the $125 billion and that they're going to have to go out and get further private money and they can't figure out um, incentives to, to make that happen, then we're going to be back in trouble, not, not next week, maybe not next month, but down the line. So, Laura, today was going to be the first podcast that was going to be pos- positive. It would be the first time since uh, since we started Planet Money that we would actually have lots of good news to report. I felt kind of lost about that, really. Yeah, well, you should feel glad that Neil Kashep uh, from the University of Chicago uh, brought us down to earth with a little bit of pessimism. So thank you, Anil Kashup. Plenty of money listeners, we just want to tell you we're going to keep digging into the details of this plan. We just want to make sure it's clear to us and to everybody else how the government is going to spend that money and what exactly Americans are going to get out of it. We also thought it'd be worth getting a broader view at, at how the U.S. government is changing. So we sat down with economist Brad Setzer. He's with the Council on Foreign Relations. He talked with me and Alex Bloomberg, uh, in a story that also airs on This American Life. Here's how the U.S. government usually behaves. It borrows money in the form of selling treasury bonds, and then it spends that money on stuff for the country. Black Hawk helicopters or cancer research, occasional bridge to nowhere, stuff in the budget. But with the passage of the bailout bill, it's going to be doing something entirely different with that money. It's going to be buying up mortgage-related assets from banks. And that's not all. Just this week, it announced it would start lending the money it raises directly to individual companies in something called the commercial paper market. Brad Setzer is an economist at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he used to work in the Treasury Department. NPR's Adam Davidson and I sat down with him a couple of days ago, and he told us that by doing all these new things, the United States has started acting like something completely different than a government. It's starting to act like a bank. It is borrowing money by selling these short-term treasuries, and lending to the banking system, and lending to firms like GE and others that are big players in the commercial paper market. So instead of borrowing money and then building a bridge, Mm -hmm. or paying, you know, uh, somebody's Medicaid bill, Mm -hmm. it is borrowing money and then investing it, giving it to a company as a loan that will be paid back, or something like that. That's the big change that happened today. Um, And then in, in addition to doing all that, there's the $700 billion that's going to be used to buy assets that are harder to value and harder to sell. And in that, it is acting like uh, – also acting like a bank or an investment bank. But it's not acting completely like a bank because if it was acting completely like a bank, it would be trying to drive the hardest possible bargain so it could make the most money. The U.S. government doesn't want to do that because making the most possible money means, in effect, buying these assets at the lowest prices possible. And there's a problem with that. The problem is that if you drive too hard of a bargain, if you're doing this as a pure financial bet, you know, sort of go for the kill, go for the kill, get them at the lowest possible price, the banks are bust. So it's acting like a really badly run bank. It's like, well, nobody else will pay you more than, you know, 20 cents on the dollar for those things, but we'll give you 40 cents. <laughs> yes. Um, but, right. but, but it's doing so for a reason. No, which absolutely. Which is that if the banks had to sell at 20 cents, they're bust. Right, right. 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 And I'm not saying that it shouldn't be doing that. It's just that it, the U.S. government is, is in this position that it's not normally in, which is to try to behave half like a business and half like a government. But, but this and, is what – I mean, you all are shocked. I used to work on emerging economies. This is what happens when you have a really bad crisis. This is what happens when the banking system is on the edge of collapse. So it's just that you – this has happened before. It just hasn't happened to the U.S. before. Exactly. Where has it happened? 
uh, Indonesia, Thailand, Argentina, uh, Russia. And not surprisingly, in all those countries, there were political consequences to the economic turmoil. It's generally not good for any political system if your banks come close to collapsing. It's, it's not a good thing. Wow. So I just don't know how to feel. Should we be very upset that they're doing this or should we be upset that the situation required them to do it but glad that they're doing it? I think you should be upset that the situation got to this point but glad that there is an actor, namely the U.S. government, that is still in a position to do this. The U.S. government still has the ability to borrow, and because it still has the ability to borrow, it can provide support for the, the banking system and the broader financial system and prevent what otherwise could be been a catastrophic run. Because in some of these other countries, the U.S. government is right now in a position where they can borrow money essentially for free at very, very low interest rates at 0.1%. Which is the... the, the com- that's the exact opposite of generally what happens with when other... When other crises happen in other countries, right? Their borrowing costs go way up. Either they have to pay exorbitant interest rates to borrow in their own currency, or they can only borrow in someone else's currency, which right. means that you're taking on even more risk. So is there a limit to how much money the U.S. government can borrow? Like, if they have to borrow another $700 billion in a month and another $700 billion in a month after that, can they do it? Possibly. In some sense, it depends on how much anxiety and fear there is. Because the more anxiety and fear there is, the more money is leaving the banking system, leaving money markets, and the more money that's going into treasury bonds. So the more fearful everybody else is, the easier it is for the U.S. government to borrow. In other words, people are saying, I don't want to put my money in stocks that are plunging or in bonds of companies that might go out of business or in any country that doesn't happen to have the most powerful economy on the earth. No. I want my money in the one safe place I can think to put it, U.S. Treasuries. And this is another way the U.S. government is different from a typical business. The more it screws things up, the more it mismanages its own economy, the more people want to lend it money. That was economist Brad Setzer with Alex Bloomberg and me for This American Life and Planet Money. And that's a wrap for Planet Money today. You can find us online all the time at npr.org slash money. I'm Laura Conaway. And I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. 